about admitting your part in a conflict, taking your responsibility, to seek a mediator if you get stuck and it can't be resolved, and we, f- we close with ending gossip. But to- this morning, I want to emphasize and turn a little more internal as to where do the conflicts start in the first place. Now, many of you may have remembered on the news about nine summers ago, in 2010, a volcano in Iceland erupted and it paralyzed air traffic all over Europe and a lot of the north area for many, many days, costing billions of dollars. But what happens when there's a volcano inside of us? What happens when that one erupts? Gordon MacDonald, an author and pastor and speaker at a lot of national conferences, he draws this volcano analogy. He says, I grew up thinking I was a pretty calm person and that it was others who had anger issues. Now, they might have a volcano inside of them, but my interior space was an oasis of peace and order. My habit was to not to deny angry feelings, thinking that was maturity, to retreat in times of conflict and say nothing. Then one day, a disagreement ignited feelings in me that I had never experienced before. I felt the volcanic power of rage. For many days, he says, I could hardly think of anything else but my desire to be vindicated and the other person to be appropriately punished. Anybody identify? That just takes over. And all you can think about is that's so unfair. And, and, and really, they shouldn't be doing that. I should, I, I should be vindicated. Well, anyway, he goes on and he says, I was surprised and amazed at myself. All this meanness suddenly came from inside. I needed to deal with this inventory of of large and small things I had stuffed down for years. I needed to repent and forgive to find the grace and mercy that Jesus Christ modeled. I have since learned what issues trigger eruptions in me. And I have learned to, to spot the uprising feelings that will morph into anger. So let me ask this morning, how do we keep conflict from erupting inside of us and spilling out to, uh, onto those around us? How do we stop the volcano inside of us? Because it may not stop all of the air traffic over Europe, but it might stop a lot of traffic around your house when nobody wants to be around you anymore. So let's look at James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And we'll work our way through verse 3 and then skip to verse 11. If you want to turn there in your Bible or on your device or you want to pull out a bulletin outline, you can follow along. So James writes in chapter 4, verse 1, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your passions that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So there's an inner struggle that goes on inside of each one of us, every one of us. Nobody really is exempt, I don't think, that battle. But the word passion that James uses is the same root word, as hedonism, 
In other words, we're satisfying and gratifying something that, that we have inside that needs to be filled up. And so this passion, and it's not always a bad word, but, you know, that hedonism where we live for our satisfying our own wants. And so in the context of James 4, let's say, because there seems to be conflict between people that's raging in the church, maybe it's just like, well, I have this passion that I want to be influential to the people around me because it makes me feel like, you know, I'm important. Like I am valuable. And so I I really want to be able to make a difference. And so I have this drive inside me. But then somebody comes along and they block that passion. They keep me from doing what I want to do. And I get mad inside. I boil inside. And James kind of describes it with very strong language. He says, you want to kill them. Now, maybe not literally, But maybe, you know, you kind of think in your mind, man, how would I like to drag them down? And you might even denounce them, make them feel bad, make others feel less about them because you want to feel more important. And so your passions are causing conflict in the body. James also says, we covet. I want something you've got. Whether you have a a nicer car, a nicer computer, a nicer phone, a nicer house, a better position, people like you better than they like me, and so I want that, and so I covet that, and I desire it, and I begin to obsess and think, how could I get the things that I want? And so pretty soon we're in competition, whether it's for a job or for popularity, we covet, and this conflict derails us from being who God wants us to be. So James goes on in the last half of verse 2 in chapter 4. He says, you do not have this thing you're coveting. You don't have because you do not ask God. When you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it what you get on your pleasures. So, First, we have this this raging passion like a volcano that might boil up inside. We, We attack other people. We covet what they want or what they have. And now we pray. And so we go to God. And you know, even your motives in prayer can sometimes be wrong. Sometimes you can be praying for things God doesn't want you to pray for. Do you ever think about that? Maybe, you know, it's like the obvious, okay, Lord, let, let, let me be so wealthy that no one can ever harm me again isn't going to be a God prayer. But maybe, you know, they're subtle things. And not all prayers please God. Because sometimes what we're praying for is always for ourselves. We want what fills me up, what will give me more satisfaction, what will give me more security, what will make me look more successful out there in the world. And I'm not saying that's all bad, don't get me wrong, but if that is our prayer life that is about satisfying or gratifying our passions, we're not really seeking God's kingdom. Remember what it said in Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then God adds those things that he knows that you need on. But when we're all focused in our prayer life about us and us being happy, us being content, all our problems being taken away, then maybe we end up with motives. Like James says, you have because you don't, you don't have because you don't ask. But then when you do ask, you're all focused on yourself and not on the kingdom of God. 
So we expect, even demand, that God gives us what we want. Evidence is, what happens when you've prayed and prayed and prayed and you don't get what you want? Do you get mad at God? Because maybe that's part of kind of subtly or demanding. You know, God, you don't give me what I want, then why should I follow you? I've heard that a lot in my years of ministry. I did all the stuff God wanted me to do and he didn't answer my prayers. But if we would focus more on what God wants for us and pray for that, we would find our prayers more satisfying, our life more content when we pray in the name of Jesus isn't some little magic formula we tack on to get what we want. It means in the realm of the spiritual name of who God and Jesus Christ are, I want to pray for those things instead of always praying for myself and what I want. And then God changes our heart like we just pray. Change my heart, O God. And when I pray, help me pray for the things you want because some of the things I want aren't good for me even when they're not bad things. So we might find we're more content and less conflicted inside and out. So we start to look at what's going on. And so the first point on your outline is that identify the inner passions that trigger conflict. What are you really after? What do you want? What would you say if I could just get this? I would be so much more happy and satisfied. What would that be? And start to look at when you don't get that, how do you respond? How do you act? Okay, I keep giving stories that date me, but here's another one. In 1975, yes, I was not only alive, I was, you know, in college at this time. So, anybody know who that is? Come on, you country western fans. Don't fess up. Charlie Rich, one of the most popular uh, country western singers in 1975. Well, also in 1975, there was another artist named John Denver. Anyone remember him? Okay, now John Denver was kind of a folk rock guy, but he crossed over into country music. And so he had some songs like Take Me Home Country Roads was probably his second most popular. Uh, Thank God I'm a Country Boy, some of those songs. And so this folk country style invaded country music and the country music folks were not happy. And so this is a picture of the Country Music Awards for 1975. Charlie Rich was was supposed to give the award to the guy that was voted, the person who was voted Country Music Artist of the Year. In Charlie's right hand is a lighter because he opened it up, saw John Denver's name, whom he disliked immensely. He didn't even announce the name. He put it, lit it on fire, and then dropped it and walked off stage. Oh, come on. What would we do? Have we done just as bad, though? Maybe not on a national television, but... We get mad in our minds. You know, my fantasy life is very rich in ways that that I wish it wasn't because I just, oh man, you know, like Karen was telling me of a friend who parked a trailer in front of his house and the neighbor called the police because it was against code. And immediately I sat and thought a neighbor next to him said, you can park it in my driveway at night because it was illegal to keep it overnight. And so immediately my mind thought, I'm getting up at 5 a.m. and I'm moving it right back where that neighbor sees it and can't back out of their driveway easy. (laughs) 
And then I'll leave it there until, you know, they're home at 9 o'clock at night because it says I can't have the trailer overnight. So I might as well move it, you know, block it. And then this, you know, Dorothy's shaking her head. You know, this is the kind of stuff I have to deal with all week long. People like you (laughs) and your grumpy neighbor. And that's exactly what the guy did. But before she told me that, it was already going through my mind because there's this inner passion like, oh, come on. Why are you being so petty? I'll punish you. So I'm a lot like Gordon McDonald. This little volcano, now maybe it isn't much. It's just a little steam vent at that point. But, you know, our minds think of these things and we are more like Charlie Rich than we want to admit. We just don't have a forum to burn John Denver's name in public. So what passions inside you are most easily ignited? Are you more focused on gaining the tangible things of this world that you can hold and touch or people that look up to you? Or are you more focused on having a heart like Jesus and saying, cleanse my heart, O God. Make me new. Make me, make me be like you and not like what I want to be in my flesh. Make me content when someone frustrates my desires. Is that how you are praying? Help me identify those inner passions, God, to keep me from conflict. Well, let's skip to verse 11 in James 4. Do not speak against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Speak against here is more than just criticizing. It's okay. We'll look at Matthew 18 in a few minutes. There is a time to speak out, to speak to someone. But this kind of speaking isn't just criticizing. This is speaking down in a hostile way. Scripture sometimes uses the word revile. This is reviling somebody. And so when you speak against them in this way, you're trying to harm them. You're trying to to condemn them because we're going to have the word judge in there. We put somebody down because we want to feel better about ourselves when we put somebody else down. So, and, and then we tell our friends, you know, so they can help with the assassination of that person. And then verse 12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, judging in this context is judging with a critical spirit. It's destructive because what you really want to do is condemn that person. And James is saying, you don't get to do that. Why not? Because you've placed yourself as judge, jury, and executioner of another person. And when we don't get all the facts, we condemn, and we often don't get all the facts, and we say, oh, that's, they're wrong, they're horrible, they shouldn't have done that, what a bad person they are, and we have judged and condemned. What makes us think that we can judge a person's heart more accurately than God? Because he's the only one who really sees a person's heart to really know what's going on inside. And we actually, when we're doing that kind of judging, we usurp God's role as judge. Now, you might be thinking, as I do when I hear this, to say, yeah, but there's scriptures that say we're supposed to judge. So how do we know? Because 
The motive is to condemn somebody. But John chapter 7, verse 24 says, Do not judge according to appearances or appearance, but judge with right judgment or righteous judgment. Same word, right or righteous. See, right judgment in the context when Jesus is speaking to them and they told him, you have no right to heal that man. And he goes, you need to stop looking at appearances and you need to start looking to judge with a right judgment. Look at the behaviors. Here he is healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath and they say it was wrong. It violated the law. And he says, you have wrong judgments. Look at my behavior. It was a good behavior because this is trying to help some situation or a person from harming themselves. This kind of discerning is to help me discern this behavior to say, is there something that is harmful for this person? Not to condemn them, but to help them, to restore them. So I need to be able to not say I know their heart, but I have to look at the outside behavior, not just the appearance of what something is, but the actual behavior. Because my goal is not to condemn and it's not to tear down, it's to heal. So the next time you're tempted to talk about somebody, practice the think. It's in your outline, I believe. Think, T-H-I-N-K, before you speak. First, the T is for, is it true? H, is this helpful? If I say this, is it helpful? First, have I gotten the the truth, the facts? Is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? Is this going to help the situation? Well, that's the H, was, was helpful. But is it inspiring people toward God? And is it necessary? Is it really, do you have to pick at every little thing that somebody's doing or how they look or, or that you don't like? And we end up nitpicking at people over petty things. And K, is it kind? The manner in which we approach them. If it's true and it would be helpful and it would inspire them toward Jesus, it is necessary. But how I do it, is it kind? Ephesians 4, 2, and 3 talk about gentle and kindness and how we speak to one another. So number two, don't attack others and extend the conflict. We identify those inner passions, but don't attack others and extend the conflict. So now let's move. Well, first let me ask you, have you spoken against someone in a conflict? Have you gone and spoke harshly to them or about them? And when have you judged another person to condemn them rather than to heal them? And are you willing to go mend the relationship? Are you willing to go, like we said last week, go to them and admit your part? Take responsibility. Even if your responsibility part is small in your mind and theirs is much greater, it doesn't matter. You start because that's what Jesus does for us. He gives us grace. And so you go mend the relationship. Don't attack and extend the conflict. Go and heal. Matthew 18 gives some steps for confronting a significant issue that the scripture will call sin. Now, let me make clear here a couple of things. First is this is, we're not talking about a preference. You know, I think that this thing should be done this way. No, it should be, it's not a sin issue. So you don't go do Matthew 18 over something 
that's not a clear sin issue. You also need to make sure that you have all the facts. You don't go confront somebody when you only heard half the story. So you might need to have a conversation about what happened before you practice Matthew 18. So here we are, Matthew 18, 15. If another believer sins, so it's not an opinion, it's not a preference, and it's a state, it's, it's a known, let's say it's known to be true, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. So number one step, discuss one-on-one. Talk to them. Share your concern and do it in a respectful and caring way. I'm concerned this area in your life is hurting you. Too often we react by shunning them, ignoring them, pretending they're invisible or gossiping about them instead of challenging the problem because like we said last week, you know, you take a risk and we're trying to resolve. The person might yell at you. You might feel like it'll get worse, but buried conflict is only going to make you and the church worse. So challenge the problem. Point out means to convince with solid evidence, not just an opinion. We discuss the situation so that they understand biblically what they've done is wrong. Show them in scripture, here, this isn't good. I have to take a drink. Excuse me. So you show them biblically what they've done is wrong because you're intervening to help, not condemn. If they agree, you've won that person back. And win back in this situation means to trade what's harmful for what is, what is helpful and better. You trade up. It helps the other person grow. That's the whole point of this, of Matthew 18 at this stage is to help a person, to help them walk closer with Jesus. Now, what happens if they don't agree? Verse 16, but if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So take another person in step two. First, you go privately, discuss one-on-one, and now you take another person. At this point, you are only expanding this little circle of confidentiality because you're not telling everybody, oh, look what they did, look how they're wrong. Uh, You're not going out to try to make destructive waves. You're going to them. You're talking to them first. They don't respond, then, okay, you take another person, two other people who may have have seen the same thing. They may have witnessed that, and so you, you, two or three of you are there to say, look, but this is really not good for you. This does not help you. This is harmful for your life. It's harmful for your relationships. And so you take them with, it, with you. If there's no witnesses to what, what happened, you could take another person or two just so they can be with you to hear what's going on, maybe add some objective help and maybe a little mediation if the person's not responding, or at least to be able to say, look, we went through, we did this in a biblical way. It wasn't done in a brutal, beat them up kind of way, and they can help confirm that it was done in that way. So how do we restore somebody in that kind of a constructive way? Before you even go to discuss this sin or potential sin with somebody, Galatians 6 one says this, If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit 
should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Make sure your heart is right before you go. Make sure you can go and humbly discuss without being caught up in your own sin issue. Maybe you would come and you have a judgmental spirit. Maybe you in that time might lose patience because you just have to have them respond. And so what what we're saying in Galatians 6.1 is pray up. Make sure your heart is right, that you're going to restore. It isn't about you winning an argument. It's about you restoring a brother or sister. So Matthew 18, verse 17 says, if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. So you've gone through step one privately, one-on-one. Then you've taken a witness or two. And now they're still not responding. Present the issue to church leaders. It says in verse 17, tell it to the church. I think we start with the leaders to kind of help shepherd the process through to make sure it's done appropriately, but it will end up in the church. So the church leaders get involved. They help persuade and restore an erring brother or sister. And there are two points in doing this step three. One is they're trying to to protect the purity of the church. Two, is restoration. And I've been in a church where we went through these steps. I had a guy in my ministry that basically left his wife to go off with another woman. And I talked to him. And it took months of meeting with him. But eventually he came around. And so step three, present it to the church leaders. And before we took it to the church, we appealed to him over a period of time. And so we're protecting the purity of the church and a ministry, and we're balancing it with restoration of the person. And now we're becoming a little more public. The congregation's response, if, you, if they still don't respond, is to tell them. And they don't shun them. They don't treat them like they're invisible or they, they have a disease. Rather, we respond to them like we would to a non-Christian, to an erring brother, it's like a, it says a tax collector or a pagan. In other words, you go and you make a relationship and you appeal to that person to come back to the Lord. You don't try to beat them up. You don't try to humiliate them. And so you don't ignore them. And when we did that with this guy, I kept meeting with him regularly until pretty soon his, oh, look how wonderful this relationship is, had deteriorated. The relationship wasn't so wonderful. The lady's husband wasn't so wonderful was threatening him. He almost lost his job, which was a very, this was in the Washington, D.C. area, very high up in the government and got called up by a really high up politically appointee person and almost lost his job. You don't ignore the problem. You don't hope it goes away. Go away. Hope you never see the person, not have to deal with them. We need to deal with this as a church and love them back into the kingdom if we can. Because unresolved conflict will grow into a broken relationships and broken churches. Now there's another scenario too in conflict after Matthew 18. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 said this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift to, at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, 
leave your gift there in front of the altar and go and be first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. In other words, you've had a falling out with somebody and you've offended them. And you say, I need to go before I take communion, before I'm going to do this, this thing of worship toward God, I need to get right with my brother or sister. And I need to go and I need to take responsibility for my part. I need to try to restore the relationship. You take the initiative. Don't say like we did last week, wait for them to come to you because you think they have a lot bigger pile of things they've done wrong than yours. So they should be the one to come first. Nope. We're followers of Jesus. We act like him and we go first. So number three on your outline, resolve conflict through restorative discussions. We resolve conflict by having progressive levels from one-on-one to take some witnesses up to talking to the church and the elders can handle it and eventually it may have to come before the church. When I first became a pastor of counseling back in 1991, the senior pastor of a large Bible church brought me there. It was his vision. And then four months later, he ran off with his secretary and no amount of healing helped with him. And it was like a church of 2000. And so um, we did the steps of church discipline. And often they just fade off and you try and appeal, and many people did. After six years, he and his now new wife came back, and they looked 20 years older because they had been, you know, their families, of course, were completely shattered. But they stood in front of the congregation to confess and said, this was the worst thing we've ever done in our lives. We've lost family. We lost, he lost his job, of course, had a hard time finding another one, and they were there to say what we did was wrong. So I can tell you it may not always work every time when you do church discipline, but sometimes it does, and it's worth it because God told us to do this, to do everything we can to restore. There's a man named Glenn. He was working in Zambia, Africa, with an organization. And so Glenn struggled with how his mission organization did things. He thought that it should be done this way and that way. And let me tell you, one of the things when things are overseas on a mission field, we all think everybody's going to get along because they all love Jesus so much more than the people that stay home at church. It isn't that way. The biggest reason people leave the mission field is relationships with other missionaries or mission organizations not because they can't get along with the people that live in the country. So anyway, Glenn's struggling with that kind of stuff. He voices his opinions and comes into conflict with with workers and church leaders. So Glenn comes back, returns home, and he's having health problems, physical health problems. And so he goes to the doctor, and and these symptoms, uh, the doctor says, you need to talk to a counselor, because Glenn's all filled with resentment and bitterness and anxiety and unmet expectations. And so this counselor suggests that Ben, sorry, Glenn needs to deal with his inner conflicts. So Glenn says, I wrote 16 letters to those with whom I felt my past relationship was strained or broken. Some were African church leaders, some were fellow workers, several were organizational mission organization executives. 
he says, I assume full responsibility for all that had happened. I didn't blame anyone. The responses I got back were varied, he said. Some wrote to say they, they too were sorry that our relationship had been broken. They were glad to have it repaired. A few came to see me personally. One worker wrote this, quote, that's just the way you are. I tried to tell you differently, but you wouldn't listen. By the time, you know, and, and this person says, by the time a person is five years old, their attitudes are set for life. So for you, there's little hope for change. I have to assume because it's a mission organization, this person's a Christian. I think somewhere they missed the lesson on the grace of Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit can change anything and anyone. And there is no issue God can't change. And if our whole behavior and life attitudes are set at age five, then there's not much hope for Most of the world is there, but there is hope. We can recover from harm and hurt even before age five and after. Romans 12, 18 says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Because there's no guarantee if you do all the stuff we talked about this week and last week that everybody, oh, this is so great, we've resolved every conflict. But we keep at it because as far as it is possible and it depends on you, be at peace. But sometimes you can't. Sometimes the other person simply isn't going to respond. And when you've done everything you can, you just pray for them. And pray for your own heart not to let those passions rise up. So do your passions rule your spirit when you feel like your rights have been violated? Do you covet what others have and you brood over how you can have what they have? Do you pray with wrong motives to get your way? Do you let your tongue rule your spirit and speak down to somebody with whom you disagree in a harsh way? Do you judge another person's heart and condemn them? Those are the things we've talked about. But instead, you can engage in the steps of progressive restoration and healing to resolve something harmful in someone else's life. Because when Jesus prayed that prayer, like I said last week, out of all the things he could have prayed for for the church, he prayed for unity and oneness. And it takes a lot of work, doesn't it? Let's pray. Lord God, again, we come to you and say of our human condition is just so frail at points. We get so caught up in our own world and convince ourselves that we're right and the others are wrong. And then we destroy relationships. Help us to let your spirit work, not just in our behaviors, though we do need to change those and how we might gossip or how we might harm other people with our words. But Lord, dig all the way down into the depths of our heart and change our hearts. Make us new. Make us clean and be like Jesus. Root out those passions that are not of you so that we can heal and restore and not have the kind of conflicts that James's church was experiencing that were tearing the church apart. May we be a church that's unified, not just on one or two layers, but all the way down to the depths of who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.